From MTMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. The true definition of disruption is that you're disrupting something that exists today. And I'm not sure we know exactly how healthcare will be disrupted. That's Anders Gilberg on data and the potential impact of companies like Google and Amazon on the future of healthcare. We'll hear more from Anders on the role of preventative care on lowering cost, the push for improved price transparency, and his team's industry predictions for the next decade. But first, a word from our sponsor. MGMA 20, the financial conference, will be here before we know it. And we've got an exclusive discount for podcast listeners looking to join us March 5th through 7th in Nashville. Use the code POD20 at registration to save $200 and reserve your spot at an industry-leading event designed to help medical professionals run a more profitable and efficient practice. Whether you're a CFO, accountant, physician, consultant, or other related position, the Music City is where you'll want to be. To learn more or to register, visit mgma.com TFC20. And don't forget to use the code POD20 to save $200. The government affairs team at MGMA serves as the advocacy arm for members across the country, giving them a voice in Washington, D.C., and helping shape important healthcare legislation and policies. The leader of that team is Anders Gilberg, and he's here today to share more about his staff's article on healthcare predictions for the decade ahead. Anders is the senior vice president of government affairs at MGMA and has more than 20 years of government and health policy experience. Anders, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Daniel. Now, you're there in Washington, D.C. There's so much going on. It's so unpredictable right now. But it is a, uh, it's an election year. So since you've been embedded there for, for decades, really, um, what does an election year typically look like um, as far as health care reg- legislation? Does it stay pretty much status quo as people are just trying to get reelected, or is there some movement uh, that our listeners need to be thinking about? Yeah, it's rare that actually a major piece of legislation would pass in an election year. I mean, healthcare is a huge topic for the nation, and it has uh, a relationship to important issues like our economy. But Typically, because of the political nature of an election year, large amounts of public policy don't don't get accomplished through the legislative process. We do, however, do a lot of work on the regulatory side. And when you think about the type of things that medical practices are um, are dealing with on a day to day basis, they tend to come through the the administrative side of healthcare law and and what happens in Washington. And so we still spend a lot of time working on regulations in election year. I think that when you kind of step back and you hear that in an election year, there's gonna be a lot of talk about healthcare. And that typically manifests itself in terms of the different candidates' platforms and their uh, campaign promises with respect to healthcare. But I would just kind of remind everybody to think back in terms of uh, election year promises and how they translate into policy. It, it, uh, well, I think platforms and candidate positions in election year often, um, they form the basis for policy in, if, uh, 
you know, a particular candidate is elected, but that candidate still has to deal with the Congress and still has to deal with the 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 harder questions about how to pay for things, for example. So it's usually there's usually just a big difference between um, a political platform and public policy. Mm-hmm. Now, you and your team in D.C., you've done something pretty interesting because this is not only a new year, but it's a new decade. The the roaring 20s or whatever we're going to end up calling uh, this decade. And you and your team have put together a, a paper. Um, it's healthcare predictions for the 20s. You've kind of gazed into that crystal ball to figure out what you guys think uh, is going to happen in the healthcare landscape over the next decade. So share an initial idea for us. What do you think is going to be happening in, happening in this space over that long term? Yeah, and thanks for teeing that up. I, I think MGMA's unique perspective is that we have a window into the medical group practices of you know, across the country. We have members uh, in the smaller medical practices. We have large large practices as members. Um, you know, our our typical uh, focus is on medical practice and the business side of medical practice and. You know, that gives us a really good window into what we're seeing both in Washington, but also around the country in terms of what would be impacting um, uh, medical practices over the next 10 years. I, our, when we put this paper together, I sat down with, with our staff and it definitely has an angle of, of, there's a policy angle. So, you know, we didn't make necessarily predictions um, that were devoid of um, public policy elements. But the first one, I, I think, you know, we feel pretty strongly about this, especially, you know, obviously we're coming from MGMA, but, um, you know, we feel that the last um, 10 years has been really challenging for medical practices. And that has come in the shape of uh, increased administrative burden and just some of the competitive trends that have led to consolidation, uh, both, um, you know, medical practices getting larger as well as hospitals buying medical practice. And one of the things that we see is that there's been an increased focus on on lower costs. And it, that's nothing new, but I think that's just going to ramp up in the next 10 years. And you know, we see certainly that purchasers of healthcare, you know, companies with employees that they insure as well as payers that there's going to be an increasing um movement to require consumers to visit ambulatory care settings or medical practices, in our case, um, as opposed to facility-based settings or hospital settings. We're already seeing some of that. And we think that the government will finally eliminate pay differentials right now that you see across outpatient sites of service, which which typically favor hospital-based settings, and they get a little bit more money than in, in, in a freestanding medical practice. And, um, you know, part of that is about money, but part of it is that um, the clinical innovation, the techno- technological innovation that has occurred over the last 10 years has set a, a, um, a platform for um, an expansion of the types of services that, that can be performed outside of a hospital. I mean, now it's not uncommon. I personally had ACL surgery a couple years ago, and the entire thing was done outside the hospital in a ambulatory surgical center that was clean, high quality, 
lower cost, and I had a great outcome. So you're going to see more of that. And I just think if I had to boil it down, that with greater transparency, which you'll see is one of our other predictions, that nobody's really going to be willing to pay for any markups based on sites of service. And so I think that that that's going to that's going to advantage ambulatory care settings, including medical practice practices, and that facility-based settings are going to have a harder time because they have greater ho- overhead and fixed costs. And in Washington here, policymakers are going to need to consider, you know, that hospitals, for example, they provide an important safety net for a community. They also train our nation's physicians, but there's going to need to be a focus on how do we make sure that we provide um, support for hospitals as a safety net while at the same time not creating market imbalances in terms of uh, the prices and the cost of services that all things being equal should should be the same regardless of a, of where they're being performed. Mm-hmm. Now, working through the, the article that you guys have put together, one of the next points here, it, it really caught my attention. You say that uh, an ounce of prevention is finally worth a pound of care. I love that turn of phrase and just want to dig down on that. What do you mean by that? How does that play into this shift into the the power move back to medical groups and where they have an opportunity moving forward? Yeah, I, I think that we, we've seen some of this in the in the value-based care movement and the value-based payment movement. Um, if you put a medical practice under some type type of risk contract, in under which that if they keep people out of the hospital, they keep their patients out of the hospital, or if, if you, um, you, you focus more on prevention and that prevents higher cost uh, procedures down the road, then, then that practice can share in the savings. So, you know, certainly we've seen some of that, but I think, you know, one of the problems, especially here in Washington, that policymakers and, and Washington actuaries haven't really given um, significant thought to the savings, the true savings that that prevention can have in our healthcare system. You'd be really surprised. I mean, th- what happens in Washington is actuaries t- typically look look at policies being uh, implemented at a, in a 10-year window, and if something. Uh, even though it has a long-term positive effect on, effect on the health of, of the U.S. population and it could potentially save money in year 11, by the way we do our legislating, that um, if it costs money up front, if you invest in something up front, it then, um, by the nature of the way the actuaries look at it, um, it's seen as cost to the system without any thought about the savings down the road. So I think one of our predictions is, is that prevention will finally make sense to policymakers. You know, I'll give you an example. You could do 100 office visits with, pay, you know, diabetics um, who, you know, the evidence-based treatment protocol is to do a foot exam every year. And 100 office visits would still cost less than if one of those patients had to go into the hospital and, and have a really unfortunate outcome like having an amputation um, due to the fact they didn't get that service in, the, in, the, in a practice setting. And so we see that those type of cost-benefit equations will be better acknowledged and, um, and more readily apparent in our public policy over the next 10 years. And I think that that will benefit medical practices 
and we'll see more payment for things like chronic care management. So instead of paying for, you know, when a, a chronic condition becomes acute and you have to go into a hospital, again, there'll be more, more upfront money for, for primary care phys physicians and other um, ambulatory care uh, prevent, prevention um, focused um, approaches to prevent those high cost uh, acute episodes in, in, in the highest cost settings that um, really drain the, um, you know, the costs out of our healthcare system today. And so we even, you know, think that we're going to see more non-traditional services like telemedicine. In the end, I think, you know, primary, primary care practices will also be a beneficiary of this. And so it's all kind of bundled into this notion of that the government just hasn't done a good job of recognizing how prevention um, can save money and save lives. And I think they'll do a better job in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. Well, we see it, though. I mean, with techno technological advancements, uh, you had mentioned telehealth, telemedicine. There's just so much that can take place where you can avoid not only the the cost of, of, of making that visit into a hospital or even into a, a, a physical healthcare setting, but you can uh, save so much time as well uh, just by basically checking in and, and having your doctor communicate with you or someone else from that clinical side. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about your personal experience. You talked about that ACL surgery. What went into the, your thought process of keeping it on that ambulatory side versus going to the hospital? What, what was your thought process there that finally uh, helps you make that decision? Well, I've been working in healthcare for 20 years, and, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think of myself as, as a relatively sophisticated consumer of healthcare. I have a family as well. And, it, you know, one of the troubles is that there isn't a whole lot of information out there. And so I did a lot of research. And the first thing I came upon, um, which wouldn't surprise a lot of people that have done similar research, is the fact that I could get my, when I had to get my, um, uh, my knee, an MRI of the knee, I, I went to a um, freestanding um, MRI center, it was close to my house, and it cost a third of what it would have mm -hmm. cost if I went to a, a hospital near my house. And so that opened my eyes. And then through conversations with my physician, we made the decision that I could, I could have this surgery done in two different places. And one would be, you know, the outcomes were great. The, the, the physician was very positive about the work that he could do in that ambulatory surgical center. And the cost was less. And it worked out it was a win-win in terms of cost as well as quality. And I think that, you know, that kind of plays into certainly my personal view, but I'm not alone. And I think that policymakers and others looking at the bigger picture are going to, um, are going to incentivize that type of care. I, I'll, I'll give you, Daniel, like another quick sort of example that I've seen from a policy perspective that I think should be an, would be an eye-opener to to our listeners, especially those managing medical practices, that you know, one of the largest health plans in the country recently started doing prior authorization based on site of service. So, you know, that they're actually going to be putting restrictions on um, upfront authorizations to get care performed 
uh, either in a hospital setting or in a non-hospital setting, in a non-facility setting, and they're just going to deny it up front. And I think that obviously we need to be careful of that. If there are true quality concerns, then we don't want health plans um, necessarily dictating how physicians um, care for their patients. On the other hand, I do think that that feeds into the trend that it is just going to happen that there will be less coverage of certain services in an inpatient setting because of the high cost, high cost and and um, potentially you know nominal quality improvement by by doing it in that type of setting. So, you know, I I think we all have personal examples, but I think from a policy perspective, it just reinforces where we're going to go. Mm-hmm. From that policy side. Share with our audience then how, how there are so many things on the plate of a legislator. They have a lot of information, a lot of major decisions to make. So how do we better inform them? How do they stay up to speed on what is needed in the healthcare world? Um, and I know you and your team are a, a perfect example of getting them some of that information, but kind of walk us through that process about their education and um, how they can make better informed decisions for the healthcare industry. Yeah, I, you know, one of the unique aspects of MGMA is that we have access into these medical groups, as I mentioned earlier, and um, the executives that run medical practices have a, have a great kind of global view of how a medical practice is operating and what are the you know, what are the things that the government can do to help and what are the government, what, you know, what are the things that the government should stay out of? Frankly, most of the time it's the latter. I think the government often interferes too much in our medical practices and that, that creates a lot of frustration. So the way we're set up and frankly what's informed our predictions for the next decade is, you know, while I, I personally believe in these predictions, I also must say that these are not from my uh, maybe other than the ACL example, but these are not from my personal experience. These are these are from the experience of the 50,000 MGMA members that help inform what we do here in Washington. And by getting that information, we can synthesize it and take it up and talk to lawmakers and educate them about what's working, what's not, where do we see, um, you know, the advantages of public policy, what can we change. Uh, what can we do to streamline many of the administrative hassles that our members face on a day-to-day basis? And, um, you know, try to, try to find solutions that are both good for physicians, for patients, for medical practices, and for our healthcare system so, you know, we can reduce costs and, and raise quality in this country. And, and so we certainly do that here from the Washington office perspective. But I would say to the listeners that you too can help educate your lawmakers. If you're frustrated, you know, one of the things that we tell the members uh, that call call here is that, you know, share share your experience with your, uh, your local legislator. You know, build a relationship with that member of Congress. Call up the district office and say, hey, you know, I'm having a problem. Uh, I wanted to, to alert you to it, see if you could help. And by building a relationship with your lawmaker, and even the staff in the district office can be, it's incredibly valuable to having an impact on, on healthcare policy in this country. And what you'll find is, just like what happens to me in Washington, is once you build those relationships, 
you don't have to call them anymore. They will call you because they will see you as the expert in managing a medical practice and they need to understand you know what that's like and what goes into managing a complex business like a medical practice and then you can inform them and help them understand how public policy would impact uh, the delivery of healthcare in this country. Yeah. Um, before we gaze into that crystal ball, look forward again, let's look back one more time. Give us one success story because you've been doing this for decades. What is a success story from a policy standpoint where you've seen MGMA's input really uh, you know, have a benefit there and, and help get some education going and help um, shape some of the legislation that takes place? Well, I think, you know, one of the things people should recognize is that, you know, healthcare policy is very incremental in nature. Mm -hmm. And so I must say that there's, there's rarely a beginning and end to what we do here. <laughs> okay. You know, um, sometimes I, I joke that one of the most satisfying things I do in my life is go out and mow the lawn because I will have a start and finish point mm -hmm. and I will be able to see a job well done, hopefully. But um, in Washington, that's a lot harder. I would say that where MGMA can, makes a difference and will continue to make a difference is, again, you know, the, the current administrative overhead for a medical practice is somewhere in, in the range of 15 to 20%. And that 15 to 24% of all of their costs have to do with overhead and administrative costs, including those that are regulatory in nature. So, you know, we've had many wins over the years. We prevented large pay cuts to physicians and medical practices when we repealed the sustainable growth rate formula, which some of our, our, our listeners might remember, um, and stabilized the healthcare system. But our work is really never done. It's really always an incremental, um, you know, effort. And um, so, again, I think where we have the biggest impact, but it's an ongoing impact, is identifying um, administrative burden, identifying where when the regulations kind of the rubber hits the road, mm -hmm. which is squarely, squarely where, you know, an executive of a medical practice sits and informing uh, lawmakers um, of the impact and then um, and then, you know, gently guiding that in a more positive to a more positive outcome. OK, thanks for that. Um, now, one of the next things that you guys tackle in your predictions is data. You clearly state that data is king um, for the MGMA listeners. They know that. They know uh, they come to MGMA for many reasons. One of those is uh, the data that we provide. So talk about that. What is the role in data, um, and where do you see that going? Yeah, obviously, MGMA is known for data, and so it's something you know that we we see as critical to um, successful business operations of a medical practice. But from a public policy standpoint, you know, the last decade had been one which there have been a lot of mandates on medical practices, mandates in which they would be required to gather data simply for public reporting purposes, and. Um, we see that shift taking place with respect to data over the next 20 years, um, a shift from that reporting uh, type of mentality to more analytics, to more uh, implementation of data. You know, we think we're entering a decade of data-driven decision-making, and, and that data-decision-driven-making uh, 
uh, data-driven decision-making um, can help improve operations, can help business modeling and care management practices uh, within, within a group. And, um, you know, I, one of the things that's frustrated our members increasingly is the lack of interoperability with healthcare information technology systems. And we see that, that the movement, which has been a long time in the works, at least a decade or more, um, to allow systems to speak to one another across, um, not, not only just across town, but across the country, we see that industry-wide um, shift towards interoperability beginning to bear, bear fruit in the next 10 years. Um, we still see that it's gonna be a struggle and a balance to maintain security and patient privacy, and we see that playing out well beyond the next 10 years. But um, I think, you know, again, when you think about the important role that data can play, I'll give an example in the world of value-based care and value-based payment. If, if a practice has information that one of their patients under, you know, that's a patient that they're accountable for under a value-based care arrangement with either the government, Medicare program, or a health plan, if that patient um, goes into the hospital, uh, which is, again, it's a high-cost setting. Maybe they show up in the emergency room. Well, or they're in the hospital and they get discharged. What data can do is help inform that practice that they need to intervene. Uh, let's say in the case of a discharge that they can contact the patient. They can go over the medicines that were prescribed in the hospital. They can help them with a, with a care plan and do everything that they can to prevent any kind of readmission for that patient. Without data, you're just really rolling the dice. And so we see that, again, the transition from, it's one thing to report data to the government, it's another thing to leverage data in your practice and really use it to better both your practice as well as our healthcare system. And so that's what we see as the major transition over the next 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned with value-based care that, that that's one of the important foundations and where data can play a key role uh, in your paper, you also mentioned that value-based care will continue to have growing pains. Why do you believe that? Where do you see the growing pains and where's the opportunity as well? Well, I think again, from our perspective, value-based care, especially as administered uh, by the government, that there's been significant growing pains. I mean, every single medical practice in the country would, it's one of the things that we can probably agree on that it's, that the move towards value has been trickier than many thought it would. And while we see a lot of um, important implementation, probably more innovation in the, well, definitely, I would say, more innovation in the private sector, the government has struggled. I mean, it may not be well known, but the government spends upwards of a billion dollars a year through the Centers for Medicare and Medi Medicaid Innovation to develop alternative payment models. And the output has been anemic. Mm -hmm. There really aren't a lot of choices for medical practices who want to pursue a value-based pathway in Medicare. There are a few, and it's starting to catch hold, a few accountable care organization uh, models that practices are, are really seeing some benefit for, from. And we're, you know, we're seeing, especially in the primary care uh, arena, we're seeing some of these alternative payment models bearing fruit. But we do see the next 20 years, uh, it's going to continue to be a struggle at the government level. 
And, you know, it plays into another one of our predictions that we do see as, as Medicare uh, penetration to Medicare Advantage increases, and Medicare Advantage, as you know, is the, you know, part of the plan, uh, program which is administered by private plans who have more data, have more information, and can offer patients a little bit of a different, a different benefit package. Um, we see probably, you know, a much greater opportunity uh, taking place outside of traditional Medicare. And it's not that something we're advocating for, particularly here at MGMA. We would love to see that the, the traditional Medicare program roll out some, some real um, well, thought, uh, well thought out physician, physician-led alternative payment models, but they just haven't shown the aptitude. Their data systems are antiquated and the bureaucracy of government just hasn't shown to be a good incubator for these ideas. And so we just, you know, our prediction for the next 20 years, I mean, next, next 10 years over the 20s is that we, we think that the growing pains that we've seen with value-based care over the last 10 years will become more or less chronic, chronic pain, at least as it relates to the government. But we do see some bright spots in the private sector, and there could be some opportunities opening up uh, relatively soon for practices that innovate in this area. Do you have thoughts on where those opportunities are? Are there things that have uh, that you've seen that that can, I don't know, give some hope uh, for the medical groups, the independent practices out there? Yeah, I mean, and so one of the things you'll, you know, I hope uh, your listeners, our listeners here today, you know, get a chance to read the article. And when you you look at some of the things we're thinking about for the next ten years, they're all intertwined. And so going back to are what we were talking about with data. I think, again, data is so key to managing patient populations. And when you're, when you're asked to either take on more risk, financial risk, um, that would be um, part of a contract with a private plan or you know, some type of risk that the government would then put on a practice to take care of a population, you can, you can do that if you have the data that um, that gives you a clear picture of who you're taking care of. I know it sounds over, it almost sounds overly simplistic. It's like flying a plane without, without, um, without any data or, or um, instruments. But the fact is, is that that's what the government has asked our, our members to do in many respects with these value-based care um, programs coming out of the government, that a lot of the, the, the programs lack data and so the bright spots that we see, at least at this point, especially if you could, are medical practices that enter into win-win relationships on the private sector side with health plans, that we've seen some positive value-based care arrangements where um, in return for almost near real-time claims data and real-time feeds about the health and welfare of the assigned patient population to a medical practice, that with, you know, armed with that information, they can do some amazing things. Mm -hmm. They can intervene. They can spend money up front. They can do all kinds of um, preventive, they can implement all kinds of preventive measures to keep their patients out of a hospital, out of a high cost setting and prevent, you know, you know, procedures and unnecessary uh, care 
through prevention, but they need the data, they need the information. So what I, I guess to put a fine point on your question, really the bright spots in the area of value-based care are all around a more data-driven approach and a, mm-hmm. um, an interchange of data between a health plan and a medical practice. Right, and to put a final bow on the data side of it, it's it's difficult in today's world to think about data without thinking about the Googles of the world, uh, the Silicon Valley influence, those disruptors um, that are you know making a uh, they're putting their stamp in some form or other uh, own healthcare. When your team sits down, you think about uh, ten years out. What impact are you look are looking at or seeing that that the Googles and the Amazons and the Apples will have on the healthcare field? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because, you know, there have been some movement, for example, um, with um, some of the big health tech and finance companies in this country to move in the area of both data and financial, um, you know, solutions. But I'll tell you, this is what I I think about the next 10 years, and this is probably more a personal opinion. I think we didn't see 10 years ago, necessarily Google, Amazon, Apple, Um, you know, they were around, but I think the true definition of disruption is that you're disrupting something that exists today. And I'm not sure we know exactly how Mm -hmm. healthcare will be disrupted. I think if it is going to be disrupted, it almost certainly has to be disrupted on the cost side of the equation. You know, personally, I think that those companies that you you mentioned, I think they're personally more interested right now in the cost side of the equation as it relates to their, you know, giant employee bases. So they're looking at how can we, um, how can we cover our, our healthcare uh, obligations to our employees at a higher uh, quality, lower cost setting. Now, it, it may very well be that Google, for example, um, as, it, as we know, there's been news reports about its foray into healthcare, um, but I, I still think that, um, you know, ultimately they would have to, to pair up their um, uh, activities with large health plans in this country because the large health plans in this country are sitting on really the most detailed and the most... Um, actionable patient data. Mm -hmm. And I think there's going to be a real, it's kind of what I mentioned with data. I think that that whole tension point between data security and patient privacy, I still think that that's going to play out. And it's not, it may not be as easy as it sounds. I'll I'll give you one, one example. Even though in HIPAA, which is a law that the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which has been on the books for decades, one of the mandates in, in HIPAA was to have a single patient identifier. And because of the politics of, of uh, privacy and the importance of privacy in terms of healthcare data and information, um, in this country, that's never been, never been promulgated. Congress stepped in and put a hold on any activity with respect to that. And so there's, I just personally feel like there's gonna be a, a real tension point around that issue and the next disruptors, we just don't know what exactly they're gonna disrupt and how they're gonna do it. But I do think it's gonna be around cost and reducing costs because that's, 
if I had to say one theme around all of our predictions is the, is the government, the companies of the, of, of, that are buying healthcare for their patients, they're all going to need to reduce costs in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something interesting there. You're talking about it from the patient perspective, and that really gets into one of the last things we want to talk about, and that's price transparency. I, I know pain points from just booking a flight recently. You know, when you go in and you <laughs> you look to at what you're going to pay, if it says it's $250, then that's what you want it to say on your credit card, but you you get in there, and then there are all these so-called hidden cost. I mean, basically, if, if you're going to uh, even lug a, a suitcase on there with you, or if you're going to check a bag, or if you're going to sit in this seat or that seat, it's all these different costs. And all of a sudden, that $250 ticket costs $400. And it's sticker shock, and it makes for an angry customer. We see that in healthcare as well. So what do you see go, going on and taking place as far as price transparency is concerned? Well, even in recent months, there's been a push for lawmakers here in Washington to push for greater hospital price transparency. You know, I think you often see policies of this nature. They might first go to hospitals where there's a commonality of procedures that are provided in a hospital setting. You know, the one thing about on the medical practice side is that, you know, you have multiple specialties, you have all kinds of different things you do in an ambulatory setting. Um, so sometimes public policy starts in the hospital setting. But we do think one of our predictions is that the trend that is just now um, starting in the hospital setting for greater hospital price transparency, that that will undoubtedly continue and expand to require medical groups to, or to disclose their both their charges as well as negotiated rates. And I think this is very tricky for, for both from a, both a public policy standpoint and a medical practice. So in your example of an airplane, um, that, uh, you know, those are very discrete things that you are purchasing. You are purchasing either, you know, a, a ticket, um, but there can be wide var- variability to the cost of that ticket, so that frustrates consumers. And, um, you know, add-ons such as baggage add-ons. And, um, you know, care delivery is a little different than that. And our healthcare system is far more complicated than that. You know, your average medical practice, they have contracts with 20 or more insurers. And those contracts are very complicated. And those contracts might um, have one price for one service based on the fact that one medical group has a higher volume of that service and another medical group might have a lower volume of that service, but they're complicated transactions that are largely driven by market power and negotiation and a contractual relationship. And health plans in this country have a lot of power with respect to negotiations as, as our provider you know, community can well attest. And um, I think while some procedures that uh, patients are going to get that are like an imaging procedure. It is pretty cut and dry what that that imaging procedure is. And I think those type of procedures, um, you will see more price transparency first around those. But even something as basic as a um, office visit, you know, you can't necessarily give a price for an office visit until the patient has been seen and diagnosed by the 
by the physician, you know, our, our listeners will know that a typical office visit has five levels of service. And so it's not until you take care of the patient and you go through and you start asking questions and you do diagnostic tests, which lead to more things potentially, that you can really offer a true, uh, a true price from the practice level. So it's going to be tricky. It's something that we're going to have to do. We're going to have to, to provide more tri- price transparency. But I'll, I will say in the end, the health plans ultimately know what price an insured patient is going to have to pay. And that, in, that insurance is different for every, you know, every patient. So we've worked at MGMA a long time on, you know, this is not the first time I've talked about price transparency. But the fact is, is that health plans are going to be, have to be part of the mix and they're going to have to help a patient understand what's most important to them, which is what are my out-of-pocket costs when I do these various things, when I go to a hospital outpatient department versus a, uh, a medical practice, or if I get a surgery done inpatient versus outpatient. And um, again, a practice can have a price, but that will be um, potentially affected by how much a health plan will cover that service and they're going to have to be part of this equation just like a medical practice or a hospital will be. Okay. Well, final thoughts from you then. We've covered a lot of ground about what you're looking at for the 20s uh, in healthcare. So just to kind of synthesize this or summarize it, what what do you want to uh, leave our audience with? What do you want them to be thinking about from a policy standpoint? How do you begin to even address this? Well, I, I, you know, thinking about this audience, I, I simply, my first message is simply that I want them to know that they have a voice in MGMA, that this is what we do. This is why you pay dues to MGMA, that not only can uh, we help inform uh, those that are running medical practices around the country of what they need to know about, where these trends are occurring, where public policy is shifting, but once we do that and we hear from you and we understand and we learn what, what's working and what's not, that um, we, we impact that public policy. We have, a, we have a strong advocacy presence in Washington and that we can um, change policy for the better and, and represent medical practices and their leaders. And so if, if I could just leave with one thing, I would leave with that, that, um, you know, please, access the resources that we have within the organization, sign up for our email newsletter, uh, you, know, read our, you know, read our predictions, and these are by no means all-inclusive. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think is going to happen in the next 10 years? This is just kind of a, an opportunity for us to get the conversation started. And so I think working together that we can have a really positive impact on our healthcare system and what we do here in Washington. And that's what a collective voice of an organization like MGMA can do. Anders Gilberg, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at MGMA, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me and uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Anders Gilberg. To read Government Affairs article on healthcare predictions for the 2020s, visit the News and Insights section at mgma.com. You can also sign up for the Washington Connection newsletter and find out how to get involved at mgma.com advocacy. 
Also, don't forget to reserve your spot at MGMA 20, the financial conference, March 5th through 7th in Nashville. Use the code POD20 while registering to save $200. Visit mgma.com TFC20 for more info or to register. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at mgma.daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.